0: House. No the right no, house I did it again We nominated. want to talk to Marilyn Hack I'm from Canada water I could bring you some more, am my right? Bolt the door, if you're coming in. That's you, isn't it? If I ask you not to say anything to anybody... And if I ask you to keep helping me with my writing, There'll be no questions about me or why there was only one book.
1: The question concerning your most recent work isn't whether it's good... It's whether it's too good. Yes! You're the man now, dog! This
0: holiday season... You don't think he wrote it?
1: God, he's a basketball player. From the Bronx.
0: Find your passion. There's a question in
1: your writing suggesting what is it you wish to do with your life. Find your courage. It's
0: a melancholy truth that even great... great... men have poor relations. Dickens. Do
1: you know what people are most afraid of? You will hear the beat of a horse's... Kipling. What they don't understand. Come on,
0: Professor. Get out. And find out. You let me take it on this one because you're too scared to walk
1: out the door and do something for somebody else.
0: What you're made of.
1: Columbia Pictures presents. My name is William Forrester.
0: I'm not one up there.
1: Academy Award winner, Sean Connery. They got some contests at school with writing thing. You ever enter one of those? Once. Did you win? Of course I won. Like money or something? The Pulitzer. Finding Forrester.
0: Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that could use a little help hauling this massage table up your stairs, please. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my co-host, who is also, also the man now dog, uh, Joe Reed. Hi, yes, I am here for our
1: podcast explanation, once and for all, about who is the man now, dog. So by the end of this podcast... who was the
0: man then, dog? Who was the man then in the year 2000? Who is the man dog? yet to come, dog?
1: Don't get religious on me. I don't want to have any, you know, messianic <laughs> I wasn't implications. I not in religion
0: terms. You know that's how we refer to
1: Jesus in the Catholic Church, right? Who you The man, <laughs> the man the, now, the, dog? The man, dog, Who is who is yet to come? That sounds weird. Yeah. Yeah. Still.
0: Listeners don't, uh, listeners who have maybe forgotten the movie we're here to talk about today, The Omnipresence because it was in every trailer, every TV ad, I Ugh. remember radio ads of you're the man now dog, it, that it was truly like a I'm the captain now situation. Yes.
1: It felt very strange to see it in context in a movie because I'm just like it's you know, in its own natural habitat. I was just like you belong you know, in can you imagine if Finding Forrester had existed in the age of memes? What oh my God. You're the Man Now Dog would have become? Like, truly.
0: It would have maybe had any type of cultural imprint, because, like, its only lasting cultural imprint is yeah. You're the Man Now Dog. Yeah. And I don't, even at the time, I was like, why is this supposed to be funny? Why is it funny to have Sean Connery saying that? Like, I don't know. We will definitely get into this movie. That Indeed. I think, yeah. Anyway, we're here to talk about <laughs> Gus Van Sant's Finding Forrester.
1: I'm excited. A movie that
0: you have been trying to get us to talk about. And, like, I fully know why, because this is, like, exactly in our wheelhouse. This is a movie that is mostly forgotten. And this is the
1: like, kind of movie where when somebody is like, oh, what do you, what's your podcast about? And I say it's called This at Oscar Buzz. And they'll say, oh, like, well, what, what does that mean? And... I would use a movie like Finding Forrester to describe what I mean, which is, you know, a movie that was clearly made with the intentions of getting big time Oscar attention and it flopped. And of course, now we don't always talk about movies that flop in this way. You know what I mean? We our last episode we talked about a movie that we both quite liked and was but was, you know, had gotten attention, had gotten Oscar buzz because it was a good movie. Mm-hmm. But If we're talking about the pure distillation, the, you know, the no alterations to the formula, this had Oscar buzz kind of a movie, it's Finding Forrester, for sure.
0: Absolutely. But, like, here's the thing. You say that this movie flopped, and it truly only flopped with Oscar, because when I looked up how much money this movie made... I was shocked. This is a movie that made over $50 million at the box office. That's like a beautiful day in the neighborhood numbers.
1: And I was shocked by the fact that it was 74% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 62% Metacritic, which I was like... Which
0: is closer to like the formula of what we do here, where it's like probably Rotten Tomatoes, it is fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and closer to the 60s or 50s range, where it's like, it got good reviews, but not enthusiastic ones.
1: I can't even... I totally did not even remember. It getting good reviews. I remembered this movie being like the butt of jokes immediately. So, you know, I learned something new.
0: I and the reason okay, you wanted us to do this for a while and I was like I I just cannot watch that movie <laughs> again.
1: See, I, had I never saw seen this it. in
0: theater. Oh, I've right. seen and it I... in theaters and yeah. was bored out of my mind, and was yeah. equally as bored out of my mind at home watching it. Like this, I movie, appreciate
1: your sacrifice. Absolutely. I had never seen it before.
0: I was so curious because it's like a Dead Poets Society vaguely meets Goodwill Hunting, but also deals with like structural racism with and like overt racism, behavioral racism. Yeah. In academia, and also
1: it makes you think like it's going to be a scent of a woman type thing and then completely pulls the rug out of even the baseline enjoyment of watching Sean Connery go hooah over this entire faculty. And like, at least they could have given me that.
0: It's I don't know like it's the formula for at least a very watchable movie and it's absolutely the most boring version of all of the things that it is. Starting with the fact that I think Gus Van Sant got a little
1: too, a little too cute on this, and I think with probably I will say he was coming off of his Oscar success with Goodwill Hunting, and you can't tell me that he didn't pull this little gambit of. I'm going to elevate this non-professional actor who's an extra on my movie into the star of my movie without the idea that like, oh, that'll make for a really good Oscar campaign. And I mm-hmm. think it backfires because God bless Rob Brown's adorable little heart. He's like a cutie patoot, but like, he's not Good. Oh, see, I thought
0: he was fine. I think Sean Connery is kind of actively bad and not really much of anything in this movie. But Rob Brown, here's the thing. I looked it up. I was. because. I was curious why we hadn't seen him in that much, and it there was a gap of several years before he was in another movie, and that's because he's 15 years old when they filmed this. That's what like, I mean.
1: He was not, he was not he in a place... He's an actual
0: 15-year-old playing a 15-year-old who's, like, hadn't acted before, right. and maybe doesn't, like, you know, doesn't have the experience of acting a little bit, but, like, I still think he was a charismatic screen presence a little
1: bit, uh. I think we disagree there. I think Connery is bad, but in a way that, like, a long-standing sort of great actor can be bad and still be watchable. Mm-hmm. And I do think he's at the very least watchable in a lot of those scenes. And I think Rob Brown is just a non-professional, a very obviously non-professional actor who can't ke- can't keep up. Is my thing. <sighs>
0: To bring it back to what you were saying about Gus Van Sant and how we are of opposite minds already about this movie, I think it is not anything to do with that. I think this is. It reminds you of a lot of what was going on and what the plot of Goodwill Hunting was in terms of like, it's this prodigy. I mean, Goodwill Hunting is math and Finding Forrester is literature. Um, <laughs> right. I think this is more. Of a response to what happened with Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake than Goodwill Hunting because like the Psycho remake, which like I should probably rewatch again, is like basically a shot-for-shot remake of the Hitchcock original, but is also like examining what our relationship is with these things that we call classics that like study are studied like down to the minutia of every single shot, like yeah, and it like we didn't get it at the time and people still don't like really get it and it's like even if we get it is it successful probably not right But like that was so reviled and it was this like creative leap the type that you can really only take after like the type of financial and oscar success that goodwill hunting had and this just feels like he is playing safe in every single way to the point that like Gus Van Sant's a hard filmmaker to really peg down, I think, because there's a lot uh-huh. of like characteristics of his work, but like this could be anybody's movie.
1: The thing about Gus Van Sant's career is and we you know we've talked a lot about our uh, uh our sort of the podcast cousin that we that we adore the most uh Blank Check and their sort of overarching thesis which is that these directors have big success with a certain movie and then they use that success as a blank check to make sort of the movie that they want to make. And Gus Van Sant's career is this like roller coaster of uh earning the blank check and then cashing the blank check and then earning another one and then cashing another one. Where it's like and it's all within these like very limited systems. Where like Drugstore Cowboy in my own private Idaho are not were not big mainstream hits, but they were huge indie hits. They essentially, like, Hmm. invented the Independent Spirit Awards. And... Excuse me. And they used those to make... Vincent uses those to make Even Cowgirls Gets the Blues, which bombs. And then so he has to like climb back up the ladder again, and he's doing uh, To Die For, and he does Goodwill Hunting, and both of those are huge hits. And he uses that capital to make Psycho, which is just like this weird, bizarre disaster. And then Forrester is his, like, oh, okay, I'll make another studio movie for you. And that movie, against all odds, does pretty well, as you mentioned. And he uses that clout to make this like series of ever more isolationist and strange and quiet movies where it's like Jerry and Elephant and Last Days and Paranoid Park and then sort of crawls up from that. And it's not like those were all bad movies. Elephant was a huge um, Cannes Film Festival hit. And like Jerry is like that one movie where people are like, you know what movie nobody talks about but is great is Jerry. and And then all of that sort of low-profile stuff Goes like steeply up the hill with milk in two thousand eight, which is his biggest sort of mainstream success since Good Good Will Hunting. Eleven years later, and then he goes from there and makes Restless, which barely exists, Promised Land, which has no personality to it, Sea of Trees, which. (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe like all line. existing copies of it like have been burned like who who even knows
0: no and I'm then, pretty sure it's on Netflix or Prime I know I'm because a A24 bought it so it's like that movie won't ever die probably the sad death that it should and I'm
1: too way. scared
0: to watch it cuz
1: I don't want to know how bad it can possibly be.
0: It's really pretty bad but not in the way that like you want to watch it and have some Schadenfreude and make fun of it a little bit. Like it's hard to do because it is just yeah.
1: No, I hear you. And so I don't know his career is is an interesting one to map out. I'm kind of dying for a blank check to actually do a Van mini miniseries. I don't know if they're interested in it. But
0: oh, like... I feel like that would be them just miserable for months <laughs> having to watch fucking yeah. Restless and Sea of Trees. Yeah. Okay, so as we are prone to do, we're already getting a little ahead of ourselves. Us? I can't so imagine. I'm going to reel us in a little bit before we get into the 60 second plot description right. once again we are talking about Finding Forrester directed by Gus Van Sant written by Mike Rich Mike Rich who we have also talked about on our Seabiscuit ep- oh my god nah, you did it again I love it <laughs> the, the tradition, a tradition the like no other the mind trigger our secretariat <laughs> episode
1: a tradition like no other uh, mistaking secretariat for Seabiscuit and vice versa
0: all due respect to Mike Rich, his IMDb credits are like, oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. He, um, for
1: a time, was a uh, decently successful writer of sports movies, right? Those sort of, like, very formulaic sure. um, triumph over whatever, where he wrote The Rookie, he wrote um he's uncredited but uh wrote Miracle, the one about the United States hockey team that won the Olympics in nineteen eighty, and then Invincible, which was um is that the one with Mark Wahlberg where he's the walk on for the Philadelphia Eagles? Yes. Okay. Is so. he
0: uncredited on that? It's not listed on IMDB.
1: So Wikipedia says he is uncredited on Miracle and Invincible. So
0: Interesting. Yeah. He also is credited for writing a one two punch of Radio and Cars Three. And so the- He's a Disney guy
1: and the nativity story which is one which is a movie we could end up doing for this at Oscar buzz if we are willing we absolutely could to put up it's radio only minutes. we could
0: that. do radio but under no circumstances will i be walk will i be watching or talking about the movie radio
1: no we will not be i can't imagine doing radio listen to the cast list for the nativity story a movie i have not seen but which is about the baby jesus uh Keisha Castle Hughes as Mary, which was the like what got all the attention because she was like mm-hmm. a teen unwed mother, whatever in real life and everybody couldn't get over it. Um Oscar Isaac as Joseph. Uh Hayam Abbas from uh of among other things, Succession.
0: Adore her.
1: Uh Kieran Hines, Shori Agadashelu, Alexander Siddig. Like this is a good cast.
0: Hiyama Boss is incredible on Rami. Everybody should watch Rami.
1: Oh, she is incredible on Rami. That's absolutely true. She has one of those, like, single episodes. She's in the whole season. But she has one of those things, like, one episode standout, like Diane Ladd did in Enlightened. That mm-hmm. is so good. Ah, you're totally right. Good yeah. job. Yeah.
0: Shorag mm-hmm. uh once queen of 2003, and almost was the major competitor to Renee Zellweger's first Oscar, but also to anyone who watches The Expanse, yes. but I do not. Yes. But my husband does, so it's like I get the <gasps> echo of Show Rag Dashlu so exquisitely cursing, echoing through my home. So the thing Nobody about. Nobody cusses as good as Show Rag Dashlu, I swear to God. It's. An absolute stone cold fact. So instead, you had me sit there with my
1: tits hanging out, blabbing for 15 minutes, saying, Trust me, I am not always a fuck up.
0: The person who says nothing
1: when nobody asks a fucking question!
0: I didn't have time or patience to read her
1: whole fucking biography. Just tell me what you have found on her. I sound incompetent. I wouldn't fucking vote for me. Please, find a way. To carve a few moments out of your busiest schedule, pick up a goddamn
0: cum and tell me precisely what the fuck is going on down there. The
1: thing about The Expanse is, for the first three seasons, it was on Sci Fi, Basic Cable, where you can, like, get away with, like, one fuck per episode, and the rest of the time, they'll sort of, like, mute you. And I did, I used to do, um, recaps for The Expanse for Sci Fi's website, and so I got the, like, um, the rough cuts which i think were like un unbleeped so i got a couple more fucks than what uh, than what people would get on the broadcast version, but now mm-hmm. season four dropped entirely on Amazon, got picked up by Amazon, and it is like rum springa for fucks when it comes to Shori Agadash, <laughs> where she's just like throwing them out left and right. They must have done some focus group where they were just like, We like it when she swears. Cause like there are full scenes where she just gets about two pages worth of monologue that you know is leading up to her saying, So get the fuck out of my office, or something like that. She's the best. And she like really just sort of like like, growls over it, but in this most, like, sort of, it's elegant and furious at once. It is, she's so good at it's that excellence. one thing. It's is, she is, And she does it while dressed in these, like, sort of big ornamental robe things, because, like, she's, the whole thing is that, like, Earth and Mars are, like, two big, like, they're essentially the new superpowers, right? It's Earth and Mars. And mm-hmm. she is the Secretary General of the, Uni- the United Nations in this new season. So she's like the president of Earth. And yeah. uh, it's amazing. Oh, my God. Watch The Expanse.
0: It's like Maleficent after a pack of Marble Reds <laughs> and a half-finished bottle of I didn't bread. know your she's husband watched exquisite. The Expanse.
1: I'm going to discuss that with him next time I see him.
0: Yeah, well, let ask him about it. All right. Then I'll interject and I'll be like, show egg, Dashley says, <laughs> fuck a lot, and it's great.
1: Hey, I watch the show and I, that's basically the first thing I say about it. So it is I mean, a very yeah, important yeah, yeah, part yeah. of that
0: show. Um. Anyway, we uh, once again, we have gotten off track. We are talking about that. Finding Forrester starring Rob Brown, Sean Connery, a very muted Anna Paquin, oh. F. Murray Abraham, Busta Rhymes, Michael Pitt, the exquisite April Grace.
1: April Grace is so good in this movie, and then she's just, like, not in it after a, a point. And I'm just I like, know. no! April
0: Grace is the absolute, like, icon of, I serve this one small uh-huh. purpose uh-huh. in a movie to, like, forward uh-huh. some type of narrative or forward a plot in a direction. But, like... She's so good. The vague undercurrent of not like not sinister but like she's much smarter than she
1: ever lets on in a a scene
0: right and you know Mm -hmm.
1: that and so it's
0: like you're always
1: waiting that was her whole thing when she showed up on lost and it's just like what are you doing here like what is happening
0: yeah we have all seen magnolia we know what you cast april grace for april grace one of the most underrated performance Performances in Magnolia, the only sane person that exists in that movie. She is
1: essentially going toe to toe with Tom Cruise for her entire screen time in that movie. And I can't imagine how intimidating that must be when Tom Cruise is like at that level of Tom Cruise, just sort of just like so intense and playing such a sort of like presciently awful character actually with all the sort of like men's rights stuff that he mm-hmm. is espousing in that movie and to be able to sort but absolutely
0: of like... seeing through all of it and having the upper hand against him at all times in that movie and he doesn't ever realize it until and we don't realize it until yeah the end of their sequence basically yes Excellence. Also, you
1: mentioned Buster Rhymes. Finally, finally, at long last, we got a scene in cinema with Sean Connery and Buster Rhymes in in the same frame.
0: It was really weird when Buster Rhymes was with him, and they were having that scene. And he's like, "Listen, you need to do right by this pupil of yours that is taking the fall for you." And then Sean Connery looks back and says, "Listen." If you really want to party with me, <laughs> let me see just what you've got for me. I can't imagine. How would Sean Connery say that? If you really want to party with me. Put all your hands where my eyes could see. Put all your hands where my eyes can see.
1: Oh my god, you really, really got me. You truly... Oh my god. Alright. I gotta compose myself.
0: Excellent put work. Put all your hands where my eyes your, could see. Put your hands where my eyes could see. That's the Let Chicago me see way. see just what you got for me. No, that, that one's not as fun. Buster <laughs> Rhymes
1: is good in this movie. Buster Rhymes is pretty good in this movie. Yes, he is. Playing a parking attendant at Yankee Stadium.
0: Also, Buster Rhymes of Halloween Resurrection. The most unhinged okay. of the Halloween films. A truly abhorrent
1: disaster of a movie. What the
0: fuck is that movie? That's, like, one of those embarrassing, like, almost associated from that franchise, but just one of those... It was the exact moment of the internet taking off in a certain direction that movies had to feel like they had to capture it in a way that made it seem cool. Right. Like, that is just, like, all of those... What are some other examples? I feel like Blair Witch 2 yes. was that. Well,
1: that was that was the whole era of... Horror had, when when Blair Witch 1 happened and it was first person, um, handheld camera, whatever, and Mm -hmm. then reality TV sort of blew up the next year with Survivor. Yeah. And then there was a whole era of horror movies that all had to have, um,. Reality TV overtones to it, like that was the the twist in it, right? Was it like right. you're all, it's all television, it's voyeur, um, you know, whatever. Everybody's gotta gotta watch, and it's tedious to watch now. I will say,
0: God, Blair Witch Two, Book of Shadows is like if there ever was a movie stooped in so much just like extraneous bullshit, like what was the thing where like the VHS they were advertising, like you should watch it in reverse to get, like, clues or something. Was
1: that a thing? I think
0: that was a thing. But, like, there was so much to do with that movie that was just, like, fully falling down this rabbit hole of, like, the original had... was, like, the primary movie that, like, had the relationship with the internet disassociated from the movie and it was just the marketing thing. But, like, they tried to galaxy-brain that for the sequel... And all of it was just so fundamentally stupid.
1: The thing about Blair Witch, too, that I, like, as watching it, that I, like, figured it out. The whole thing where, like, everything that you see on film is a lie and everything that you see on video is the truth. And I was in college at the time, which, like, I could not have been more susceptible to that, which is, like, that kind of a thing, which is like, ooh, like, this is, like, a whole, you know, thesis statement. And even then, I was just like, this movie is so... Bad and stupid, and like I'm proud mm-hmm. of myself for figuring that whole thing out. But like otherwise,
0: otherwise, we're still talking about finding Forrest. I'm still
1: thinking of goddamn
0: Buster Rhymes and Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> Woo Um That would be the hua of this movie. It would be if um, they would
1: have let him do his little speech in the in the classroom. Maybe he did say "woo got you all in check. You don't know.
0: Could you imagine, is it, how's it going to be or what's it going to be? The duet that he had with Janet. It's what's it going to be. That, like, fully iconic music video. Um, absolutely. Is that also
1: Mark Romantic,
0: or is that Hype Williams? Music <sighs> video, Hype
1: Williams. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I th- thought. Mark Romanek has a video that you think would be a Hype Williams video that's just fully ripping off Hype Williams.
1: Well, in this one, Um, the What's It Gonna Be video feels like it's ripping off a lot of that like, you know, Scream spaceship Mm -hmm. vibe. Yeah. No scrubs, that kind of thing. Anyway. God, we are fully avoiding me having to do a 60-second plot description. (laughs) Because I really don't want to.
0: I was really just going to say imagine if How's It Gonna Be what or what's aga it either way. I'm mixing it up with Third Eye Black. You are. Um <laughs> <laughs> We can't get on track. Um no, that should be a duet with Sean Connery and Buster Rhymes. Sean Connery in that like purple latex outfit that Janet wears. Could you imagine?
1: Shimmy Chomped kind of life.
0: <laughs> I wonder I want, how's it gonna be I want something well, else. You don't know me anymore. <laughs> That's just pirate. That's just pirate. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, Finding Forrester opened limited the weekend before Christmas, December 22nd, 2000, and then went wide on January 12th, making about $50, $50 million right. eventually, somehow. Um, But yeah, that's Finding Forrester, Joe, to get us back on track. Before we start talking about, I don't know, Lifehouse or something. Oh my god. <laughs> Would you like to give our listeners a 60-second plot description of Finding Forrester? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I will challenge you. We have to stop this. To do full Sean Connery in your 60-second no, plot No, won't. I will do it in my own voice. Ready when you okay. are. Okay. Alright, that is fine. Your 60-second plot description of Finding Forrester starts... Now.
1: All right, so Jamal Wallace is a high schooler. He is good at two things. He's good at basketball and he's also like a brilliant uh academic mind and a great writer. And so Um, They want to move him to a private school because he's so smart, but also secretly because, like, they want him to help them win at basketball because, like, uh, prep school admissions people are underhanded. And so at the same time, um, Jamal and his friends play basketball on these courts that are, like, uh, kitty-corner to this apartment uh, owned by William Forrester, played by Sean Connery, who's a reclusive writer based on sort of, like, J.D. Salinger-esque. And at one point, they try and, like, steal some shit from Forrester's apartment, and he steals – And he, like, holds on to Jamal's knapsack and then gives it back to him. But he's, like, edited all the little, like, writings that he's in his little notebooks. So Jamal goes and he ends ends up becoming, like, a protege of Forrester. And he goes to this prep school. And F. Marie Abraham is super mean to him. And he challenges him that he thinks he plagiarized something of Forrester's. And Forrester, who's, like, agoraphobic, finally, like, finds the courage to come out of his house and to go and defend Jamal. And eventually he dies and wills Jamal his house in the will. Or his apartment.
0: Which is quiet. Weirdest white savior movie. Because it's not really ever Forrester's perspective. I think like the whole movie like hinges on Forrester helping him in a way. I think of all the things that are bad about this movie, the
1: white savior implications are probably low on the list because I think
0: it—it's just a very very boring movie.
1: Yes, I think that's right. It's too long. It's boring. It's not super well acted, and it is mostly stitched together tropes from other things. But I think it. Whether consciously or unconsciously, Forrester, it's that kind of like, you know, I mean, Blindside is the worst example because Blindside is incredibly much uh, a white savior movie. But it's that line where they're like, you really helped that boy. And she's like, he helps. He's helping me. Um, But in this movie, it really feels like there's a lot of like meeting in the middle kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. Jamal does sort of help Forrester as much as Forrester helps Jamal. And... With the exception to certain
0: extent too that Jamal does come out ahead on his own terms in a way. Well, there's enough of a skepticism of this
1: sort of apparatus of the white establishment plucking this gifted black teenager from his public school and putting him into a private school for the purpose of helping them win basketball games while also as a like fringe benefit giving him access to this private school which has its own you know ups and downs with regard to his race anyway but like it has such a skeptical eye towards all of that anyway that Mm -hmm. the connery stuff can't really travel too far down a road because the audience is being made aware of this kind of apparatus if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah I still think at the same time, like, trying to find cutesiness in You're the Man Now, dog, uh, yeah. is the type of thing yeah. that's like, okay, but this movie does have its own racism issues. And it's like, it became a catchphrase and like, we can make fun of the movie because, like, they tried to make Sean Connery say that. Yes. Uh, like, a punchline. But... I don't know. There's also some good aspects to it. Like, as much as, like, F. Murray Abraham is, like, playing his role ghoulishly and he's, like, a ghoulish racist, it's not... The way that he enacts it against Jamal is not, like, the standard, like... I don't know, Sam Rockwell racist. You know, it's very underhanded. It is very much like speaking to the structural like gatekeeperism. Yeah, and like I don't know. If he were F. a Murray little Abraham, less, I think is also bad.
1: I love F. F. Murray Abraham, and I love it when F. Murray Abraham is given permission to just sort of like go all out, go all, you know, theatrical yeah. on it. But it's I think...
0: Ac- it's academic drag.
1: It is. And in this movie, it, like, it's not very effective, but I will say, for a boring movie that is 136 minutes long, I was kind of glad he was doing it because it was at least something to sort of entertain me on some level.
0: hmm Do we know what the F stands for in F. Murray Abraham? Does it stand for Fuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what if his mom was like fuck Murray Abraham is your name? Um <laughs> F Murray Abraham Fox is just what I'm saying. So his full name is just Murray Abraham, but his father was Farid Abraham who went by uh. Fred. So perhaps when he took his stage name
0: it's like there was someone in SAG AFTRA or SAG. Named Murray time, Abraham, like, I
1: guess, yeah. yeah. Abraham added F to his stage name in honor of his father, Fareed. He has stated that Murray Abraham just doesn't seem to say anything. Oh, interesting. He just didn't think Murray Abraham was interesting enough. I love that. Oh, okay, kidog. Okay. That's a very F Murray Abraham thing. Remember when he uh, presented the Best Actress Award to Geraldine Page when she won for the trip to Bountiful and oh my God. he opens the envelope and he goes in the Academy award goes to I consider this woman the greatest actress in the English language. The winner is Geraldine Page in a trip to Bountiful. I consider her the greatest actress who has ever graced the screen, and uh, fuck whatever. the rest Basically, of you. Basically, he's just like uh, he just sort of like took a moment to himself uh, before he announced Geraldine Page, which I thought was very funny.
0: Instead of just saying the finest actress on our screen, Geraldine Page. Right, he said, That's "I consider." That's a way her, to make it not about you. I consider sir. her to be
1: yeah. I don't know. Abigail Abraham one of those people who I will accept any kind of. Um, Uh, sort of aggrandizement for because I think he wears it so well.
0: (laughs) We have, like, maybe three of these actors. Right. Right, exactly.
1: It's sort of like how I will accept so much, like, foofy bullshit from Gwyneth because I think she's, like, the perfect vessel for it. Mm -hmm. By the way, love Goop Lab. I will say on Netflix. It is both... It's still annoying, probably. It's not as annoying as I thought it was going to be, and I found it, uh, kind of enjoyable in a quasi, you know, maybe this is how I end up susceptible to cults kind of
0: a way. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned for our Marley Marcy May Marley episode <laughs> where, where Christy Joe programs is, is gone because he has fallen into the goop cult. Um... <laughs>
1: So, so why finding Forrester had Oscar buzz seems to me a very simple equation, which is Sean Connery, Oscar winner, sort of end of his career thing. Maybe we can tack on mm-hmm. one more, you know, one I mean, more bit of notoriety. 90s, he for was him. a
0: full blown. Box office star? For decades, but, like, yeah, he was a box office star throughout the 90s, where it's, like, almost every year you have a Sean Connery movie that's either some type of thriller or an actual action movie that, like, he is an above-the-title box office draw. And, like, it's kind of surprising that there wasn't one of these type of movies in the 90s, though. Full respect to First Night. Um... Which is its own thing, but, like, that could have been an Oscar movie. He basically,
1: Um, he wins the Oscar for The Untouchables in 1987 on the the sort of fumes of his career as James Bond, right? Where he, like, mm -hmm. that's basically, I mean, he had made Highlander the year before, but I don't think that's what, like, gave him the juice to win the Oscar. It was mostly that he was james bond and that was the thing that he was known for and when he won in 87 it was like pretty cool that we were able to give james bond an oscar for doing like one different kind of character in this like chicago (laughs) barely not barely hiding his scottish accent in the untouchables uh very funny to listen to him but also easily entertaining totally cool want to get capone here's how
0: you get him he pulls a knife you pull a gun He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Cabal.
1: And then from there... Which the Untouchables is essentially like an end of career Oscar nom, right? It's just like here yeah. is your Oscar for a for a lifetime's worth of entertaining us, and he takes that, and you're right, goes on this insane run throughout the '90s where it's like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Hunt for which Red. O- he was
0: Globe nominated for Globe
1: nominated for Hunt for Red October, which he totally like steals that movie out from under Alec Baldwin and like takes over, The Russia House with Michelle Pfeiffer, um. He's a cameo at the end of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I think is always very funny. Um, Medicine Man, which is kind of a disaster with Lorraine Bracco, where he goes and uh, into like the jungles, but like that's a John McTiernan movie. Um, I think
0: like every VHS I watched as a child had the Medicine Man trailer attached, yeah, to it, So I, like yeah. I kind have of a high concept of what Medicine Man is without even ever seeing it.
1: Yeah. Um, Rising Sun makes hundred and seven million dollars in nineteen ninety three. Just Cause with Lawrence Fishburne makes... Well, that didn't make very much money. I'm trying to go through and see um, what were the hits and what were the misses. Oh my god, First Night with Richard Gere (laughs) as uh, King Arthur and Lancelot makes $127 million. And then in 96, he makes The Rock with Michael Bay, which is like huge, insane $300 million plus movie for uh, for who was the Touchstone? I can't remember who was the studio there.
0: Probably something yeah. like that. But also in 96, he achieves his true destiny, his <laughs> true form by voicing a dragon in Dragonheart.
1: Yes, absolutely true. And was like I think probably first build just as the voice in Dragonheart. I, I, I If you look at a poster, I can't imagine His name isn't first. And that movie... It's
0: Dennis Quaid, right? Who's
1: the lead of that movie? Dennis Quaid. You're totally right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also our friend David Thewlis. Well, 98. But that makes makes $115 million. This shitty-looking CGI dragon makes $115 million. That was Oscar-nominated. I swear to God, on the back of Sean Connery. And then after The Rock, he makes Entrapment. That's his sort of, like, last big hit, is Entrapment, which makes... Two hundred and twelve million dollars. It is
0: entrapment rules. Such a big hit. We love entrapment. And then Finding It's ninety eight though because ninety eight has both playing by heart, a movie I would love us to do, even though nobody knows what that movie is. Right. And also the Avengers, which was a huge bomb. Which is not the Marvel Avengers, but the British Avengers, where I think he's the villain, but it's Uma Thurman and uh, got, Ray Fon. Yeah,
1: he's got to be the villain because he's the one on the poster, sort of looming in the clouds. That's that that kind of yeah. poster where it's
0: like he's like framed
1: by two like
0: lightning bolts and whatever. Yes. So yeah. Okay. Listen, Sean Connery is like the epitome of head floating in the clouds of a poster. Yes. Like. Hunt for Red October is like basically his head on the poster. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, his f- his Blinding head is. Forrester. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: No, you're totally right.
0: Right. Rise- or like half of his face reflected in something or in the background. That's the Entrapment poster. That's the First Night poster.
1: The Rising Sun poster is him and Snipes, and you only get half of their faces on either side of this like dividing line of the. Of the Rising Sun of Japan, yeah, Connery's career is insane. It's absolutely insane, and it's the twin. I mean, Finding Forrester, as we said, is not a failure, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen still makes one hundred and seventy million dollars, but is like reviled. Like people mm-hmm. hated The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is so
0: I funny. I think it was also so expensive that like it made that much money, but was still a huge bomb.
1: And that was also when it came out that, like, he made The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because he turned down the role of Morpheus in The Matrix. So I think there was a lot of egg on his face after Mm -hmm. that. And turned down the role of Morpheus in The Matrix because he didn't understand the movie. That was sort of the other, that was the thing.
0: Um, God, I gotta say, if he was Morpheus, like... The Matrix might have sucked, to be honest. Like, I I like a lot of these shitty Sean Connery movies, but, like, talk about... That would have just made that movie kind of laughable in a way that it just doesn't need to be... I don't know.
1: Take the blue pill, you'll stay in Wonderland!
0: Yeah. The greatest, yeah. (laughs) Do you want to take the blue pill or the red pill? (laughs) Now I'm just morphing into Tina Fey doing Bill Cosby. (laughs) (laughs) You see... You see, you take the red pill, and the red pill takes you down into
1: the rabbit hole. Yep. We should go to jail for this podcast. We should absolutely (laughs) go to maximum security, no parole, jail. Anyway... Yeah, so Connery, in this movie, I feel like there was a little bit of hope that, like, oh, after this decade of hits where, like, he's made all of these people ungodly amounts of money as the most unlikely, like, you know, rebound, not the most unlikely, like, I guess it's not so out of the question that, like, a giant box office staple for James Bond movies would be able to make, you know, successful Mm -hmm. movies in the 90s. But it's still crazy that, like, a man that old was making that many successful movies. And... I think you could easily see a campaign of just, like, now in his sort of uh, playing this swan song of a man and, you know, maybe we can give him something again. And it just was not happening with awards voters. Certainly not
0: happening this year. I also think... I mean, like, this is something that we see effectively play out with other people in sometimes different ways. Like, a huge part of Christopher Plummer in his beginner's, like, trajectory was Captain Von Trapp doesn't have an Oscar nomination. Right? Because he'd never had he a He had, no, at this it, point, right? certainly not. But, no, yeah. like, it is absolutely borrowing on the former legacy of an aging star, and like, that is part of the awards campaign. And, like, to the point that I wonder if this movie could have gotten more steam if Connery didn't already have an Oscar. But, like, The Untouchables is the only time he was even nominated. Right. Um...
1: I think that's probably true. I think that's definitely true. And what I think is funny is he's still, like, every bit as much royalty as you would expect him to be. We're like, who was it that he was presenting? He presented Catherine Zeta-Jones with her Oscar because Jim Broadbent wasn't there for whatever reason. I'm sure Oscar producers were just like, oh, like twist our arm we'll get sean connor to do it instead no offense against jim broadband but he's probably not their idea of like a draw so yeah he shows up and he gives that like <laughs> the oscar goes to and the oscar goes to catherine Catherine. and he just says Catherine in that way. And I remember my one friend at the time who I worked with um, was just like he said it in a way that you knew he had sex with her, and I was just like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> and that was her like thing of just like you could tell. And I was just like, "Okay." And now I every mean, time I see it's that, it's more
0: of just like an entrapment thing. And entrapment was a two hundred million dollar movie that people loved, and like it, like we knew pretty much that Catherine Zeta Jones was probably going to win unless it was like Julianne Moore because she was the double nominee. But now it's year. all I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that they had sex. I'm pretty sure she was with Michael Douglas by that point. She was. No, but she had a baby with Michael Douglas at that point.
1: Listen, we all have... The heart wants what it wants. So just let people do what they want to do.
0: Um, we all know from Catherine Zeta-Jones' Tony speech that Michael Douglas is a man she gets to have sex with every night. What was her? What did she say about having sex with Michael Douglas and her tony speech and that man there who's a movie star and i get to sleep with him every night thank you such a good
1: speech that same friend who was convinced that sean connery and kathleen z jones had had sex also was convinced that julia roberts and denzel washington had sex because julia roberts said i love my life when she gave denzel washington They're
0: his like oscar buds.
1: so maybe this is just like a thing that was her thing of like reading too much into yeah. presenters when they said people's names at the Oscars. And honestly, I could find worse qualities in people.
0: Julia Roberts saying I love my life is like the better version of F. Murray Abraham saying, I think this is the finest screen actress, because really you're just making it about like, I love that I get to give this to my friend. And it's it's
1: in the same league as Barbara Streisand saying, Oh, I love that I get to give this to you, Clint, when um Clint Eastwood won Best Director for Million Dollar Baby, and it's the much better version of saying, buy a nose when Nicole Kidman yeah. wins for the hours, is all I'm saying.
0: Denzel, that sucked. It sucked.
1: Alright, the other half of this Oscar buzz coin for Finding Forrester is Gus Van Sant, who, like I said, was only three years removed from Goodwill Hunting, which was his big Oscar breakthrough. He sort of, like, rides in on the back of this, like, great media story with Matt and Ben and Goodwill Hunting and they sort of fought for him to direct that movie cuz Harvey Weinstein wanted to bring in any number Harvey Weinstein wanted like Chris Columbus to direct Goodwill Hunting and Matt Damon was literally just like Matt Damon there were the uh, this is another Down and Dirty picture story which like I feel like I'm recommending that book all the time but it's really good where Weinstein's like it's going to be Chris Columbus and Matt Damon is like, well, you're not going to have a movie, because no. And Weinstein sort of like blows up, and how dare you, and who do you think you are, and who do you think you're talking to? Um, You're a nobody in this town. And Damon apparently was just like, I'm a nobody with director approval, so fuck off. And um, they got Gus Van Sant, and ultimately Gus Van Sant gets the Best Director nomination. Good Will Hunting is such a, uh, you know, really ends up being this really good movie, and this big sort of success story for everybody. Even... Mini Driver who had to grumble her way through the Oscars because she had just broken up with Matt Damon. Um, He broke up with her on TV? Sure did. On fucking Oprah, of all things. Um, Can you imagine watching Oprah and finding out that your boyfriend is just like, yeah, I'm single, and you're just like, the fuck you are? Anyway. Yeah.
0: Gus but Francis. the Goodwill Hunting thing, like, is a thing for this movie because again, it's a movie about academia. Mm-hmm. It's like look at the look at this amber beautiful poster to tell you that it's like going to make you like feel smart and good. Yeah, um,
1: that these were the two movies because Goodwill Hunting and Finding Forrester, I think, are incredibly s- similar, and they bookend the Psycho remake, which is like. Gus Van Sant's career in a nutshell, as I mentioned, this sort of just Mm -hmm. like up and down sort of like bunny hills of, um, studio projects and weird personal obsessions. And yeah, I think ultimately Psycho for being the disaster that it was sort of portrayed to be is a much more interesting movie to watch. I would like absolutely choose that to watch over Finding Forrester.
0: Mm hmm. I mean, any day of the week.
1: Yeah. This movie's boring. But I think, again, the hopes were that sort of you could recapture. I think essentially it's just like, well, Goodwill hunting worked. Let's like recapture that lightning in a bottle. And
0: it. I tried to do a little bit of reason. research because I was very curious about the late release for this movie. No festivals or anything. They finished filming this movie in June of 2000. So it had like a six month gestation period where post-production happened and they released it so it makes you think that they rushed it out for Oscar yeah. which makes me wonder and I didn't have the time to look what else um, Columbia or TriStar had at the time because I don't think Sony owned them yet and I don't know what it was because it seems like the type of thing that it's like we have this that we could maybe rush out at the last minute if our other things disappoint people You know, like, we see that all the time. Yeah. Or we did during this time period. Let me try and
1: look up Columbia Pictures from that era.
0: Because...
1: So 2000 for Columbia Pictures, they were just coming off of their 99, where their big successes were Oscar Oscar nomination for Julianne Moore in The End of the Affair, and an Oscar win for uh, Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted. So... Mm -hmm. Good on them for that. Their 2000 starts with the seminal Diane Keaton, Meg Ryan, Lisa Kudrow movie hanging up. uh, The uh, Nora Ephron movie that sadly... No, wait. Oh, yeah. Nora Ephron produced and wrote that movie with her sister Delia. But it was Diane Keaton who directed that. That is right. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a this had Oscar buzz contender of the highest order, even though it opened in February, I think there was definitely a hope that that could
0: something. It was pushed from the previous year. Mm. The buzz was the previous. That's what it
1: was. What planet are you from in March, in March of 2000, (laughs) which is like the Mike Nichols movie that time forgot, right? Nobody wants to remember that Mike Nichols made what planet are you from? Because it totally, you know, Makes no sense and is insane, and nobody liked it. But then, who's the next movie? We talked about this in our last episode Aaron Brockovich, which is like huge, huge. Um, what's well, a co production with Universal? Okay, that's
0: the, yeah, I was gonna say, I thought that was a Universal movie. Okay,
1: yeah, so see, this is what they do on these lists where it's just like it was Columbia, and then they sort of just like off to the side or like co production with Universal. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're not gonna give you credit for that, Columbia. Nice try. Um, Whatever It Takes, 28 Days, not 28 Days Later, but 28 Days, um, co-production with Lionsgate on American Psycho, but that's a Lionsgate movie. Uh, <laughs> I Dreamed of Africa, this had Oscar buzz contender, Kim Basinger. Yep,
0: with Kim Basinger. That was her
1: big follow-up from LA Confidential, I Dreamed of Africa, total flop. Center Stage, which everybody loves today, but back then I don't think really like made too much of a of a dent. Mel Gibson's *The
0: Patriot*, which famously sort of maybe the closest other option that they have because it's like Sony Classics has movies. They have like uh, they had Pollock, they had *Crouching Tiger* this year. Yes,
1: Um, *The Patriot* sort of famously loses their box office face-off with uh, *The Perfect Storm*. That weekend, I think that was the um, pre-4th of July opening that like everybody was looking to, to see like what was going to win the summer, and ultimately, Perfect Storm wins out. Patriot still ends up doing really well, but still. Um, they make Hollow Man in August, and Snatch in August, which... Have their, you know, little pockets of success. Hollow Man gets an Oscar nomination. Snatch is like weirdly popular, as I recall it, but Mm
0: -hmm. they have to share it for the scale that it was, certainly.
1: And then they have co production on Almost Famous with DreamWorks, but again, that's a DreamWorks movie. Urban Legends Final Cut, which, you know, obviously huge success. (laughs) I think Charlie's Angels is, is a legitimately great success for them in November of that year. Um,
0: Oh yeah, that was not expected to be as huge as it was. Everybody because, thought like, it would be it was awful. considered a huge gamble yes. to take that property and try to make a movie. Yes.
1: And then um end of the year Sony Pictures Classics sort of gets this huge success with Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and that is like the great Oscar surprise of that year and is
0: Is that still their biggest movie ever at the box office? It made like 120 million dollars.
1: I have to imagine, right? We're talking about classics?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... They might have something that made a little bit more in the same era. Or something close, like another $100 million movie.
1: Oh, well, Coco Before Chanel in 2009.
0: Oh, of course, of course yes. yes. The, not that Coco Chanel movie. The other Right, Coco no, right, 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 right. The one that made a ton of money,
1: yes. Um... <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was Pollock it was Pollock right? yes
1: definitely Pollock was the uh, was the big one I'm trying to think of like yeah, the runaway like, sensation even Pollock. if even their like big Oscar successes like Capote is a Best Picture nomination, a nominee but that doesn't make a ton of money or hardly any money at all as I recall yeah I think Midnight in Paris made a little bit of money and I think um, a couple of other movies but like even their Best Picture nominees over the years Capote Fox well Fox Kutcher was a lone director movie Whiplash though um those weren't big money makers. They were, you know, yeah. sort of modest Sony Pictures classics. But, uh, yeah, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was like the miracle movie. So, Columbia's two thousand was, you know, as I we just sort of laid out, like a lot not of Oscar, a fan. lot of co-productions. Obviously, the big success with Charlie's Angels. But yeah, which n- makes not Oscar me
0: fan. think that like they put this at the very end of the year so that they could have something to kind of push forward. That like maybe it had kind of a roast uh, a. A rushed post production. Yeah. Not a roast. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can see why, and especially this best actor year is very crowded with like big performances. And Sean Connery, like, while he has like some of those punchlines, it's a rather quiet. You might say flatline performance, but like, how is he going to compete with like Tom Hanks in Castaway and Russell Crowe in Gladi- Russell Crow in Gladiator? Yeah. Like, even the outliers like Ed Harris and Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey
1: Rush is go- is like, like doing. Big thing, literally off the wall in that movie, like off the shit
0: covered. And then there's Javier Bardem doing like some like big emotional things in that movie. You also have Michael Douglas competing for space and not getting the nomination, and that's like kind of a kooky performance. Do you think they could have
1: run with the lie of him being a supporting actor in this movie? Not that it would have been
0: any easier. Here's the thing: I'm of two minds. Like if this movie came out today, I I think it's right to say that he is not the full protagonist though I do think that it's like shared lead type situation but like I do I could see them running him as supporting but I also see them like if Rob Brown had taken off they would say that that's the supporting performance because he's a debut performer Mm, interesting and the younger performer too just like with what they take seriously and what they don't I mean
1: I feel like that would have been whatever would have been the path of least resistance for Connery. They put him in that category, and then they justify whatever other category they want to put Rob Brown in, who probably doesn't get nominated in either one, because he's not
0: that good. Because young performers don't really get nominated. Timothy Chalamet is the exception, not the rule. Correct. Absolutely correct. These days. Um...
1: Of the other movies that we can compare this to, we mentioned Goodwill Hunting, you mentioned Dead Poet Society, um, I of course wanted a Send of a Woman scene. Do you feel like that kind of thing still has a hold on Oscar Voters? I'm trying to think of like the last time that kind of inspirational teacher mentor kind of a thing worked.
0: How many of those movies are made these days? Right.
1: I think I think it's it's almost entirely out of fashion.
0: Yeah. Like I don't I I don't want to say like no, they don't go for that type of thing anymore. It's just really like these type of movies don't really exist. Right. And it's because like most of them are chasing the shadow of Dead Poets Society because everybody has watched that movie on a classroom television that has been wheeled into mm-hmm. the room. Yes. Um so it's just, like, I, these movies are kind of out of fashion, and, like, Finding Forrester makes a good case for why. For why, why. Um. yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you get sort of, like, unlikely mentor movies, but you get them in a less traditional sense. In a less sort of, like, like, it's not, you know, it's not a surprise that an old writer and, you know, academic type, like Connery plays in this, would end up being a good teacher. But, like, I think, you know, those kind of things those kind of things are in like whiplash where it's just like oh it's like you know the psychotic conductor or whatever and yeah. that like darker scarier kind of a thing that you know the underbelly too
0: i mean i guess we still kind of get the whole mentor thing from it's not the same but like those type of movies are just like gelled into sports movies mm. maybe yeah yeah that's a good point which like those haven't necessarily gone away like a lot of them haven't necessarily gotten attention outside of maybe the Creed movies but they have
1: success in their own way absolutely right yeah
0: right well i guess uh what's his name
1: mike rich has a lot of career ahead of him even if he really <laughs> stalled out no pun intended after Cars 3
0: what about the Salinger thing? Because like at the time they kind of danced around it and said after the fact that Forrester is inspired from Salinger.
1: I it's interesting because like there were there were recluses before JD Salinger, right? Like people right. sort of like and I now I feel like anybody who plays that kind of a uh, archetype, that, you know somebody who sort it's of also like, like drops like what off the we map. Know,
0: yeah. They the a, things that have come out about Salinger since it's just like, but you weren't really basing it off of JD Salinger. You were basing it off of your perception of what right, something is, right. or like just this idea of reclusive author, which like the movie doesn't really explore in any real interesting way.
1: Yeah. Um, my my favorite takeoff on a Salinger esque character is in Field of Dreams, James Earl Jones' character in Field of Dreams, who in the book, Field of Dreams, in the novel, that character is actually JD Salinger. It's just sort of a it's a fictionalized JD Salinger. He goes, the the voice in the cornfield tells him to go and find J.D. Salinger and bring him back to the field, which he does. And in the movie it's a fictionalized version of like that sort of but also played by James Earl Jones, so there's already another sort of element to it where he's You know, this great counterculture. They talk about him as sort of like a great voice of the 60s, but also like the fact that he is a black man sort of changes a little bit of the way that he, you imagine, he must have existed in the world in the 1960s and that kind of a thing. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem quite so obvious a Salinger ripoff. And he's like living in an apartment in Boston. He's not sort of like, Lord knows where, you know, J.D. Salinger is supposed to have hold up in, but it doesn't feel quite he's a you know, he's a recluse like Connery is in this, where, you know, the whole city's happening around him, but he's, you know, sort of looking out his window at it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I liked that apartment. I like that he I like that he gave the apartment to Jamal and his family at the end. In part because they had that whole thing about like, you know, nothing's quiet in Jamal's current apartment and, you know, nobody can mm-hmm. can think or whatever. But also, I like the fact that when characters in movies have really nice things like apartments like that, I like the fact that like they don't just sort of like go away because it's you know you're a better person if you don't accept um, good fortune when it comes to your way. It's my whole thing about how when characters mm-hmm. in TV and movies win the lottery that they have to find a way for them to lose it before the end of the movie or the end of the episode, so that like mm-hmm. because you can't really handle it if you know there's that much of a change in circumstance for your characters but it's just like it stresses me out so much because i'm just like (laughs) it's so much money find a way to keep it i don't know
0: anyway yeah i mean i don't know it's it to me it feels a little still unexamined and like i don't know yeah
1: the 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 crew on this movie by the way this movie that we didn't none of us really liked very much is kind of <laughs> unimpeachable where you've got terrence blanchard doing the score oh we got to talk about the score
0: in half a second um harris zavetis I, I i love terrence blanchard and i despise the okay, score okay right, well
1: well yeah like give me like also cinematographer harris Savitas, who is Rest, in, Rest piece. in peace. One of my favorite, though, cinematographers over the years, and never really got quite his yeah. due, but I thought um, he did a lot of stuff with Van Sant. He did Jerry... Mm-hmm and Elephant, both of which phenomenal. He's sin- he did did he do milk or was that after he passed? He did do milk. Um, he was nominated for he's nominated for like a bajillion independent spirit awards for cinematography. Can you like just the lineup for those, uh, Jerry in two thousand two, Elephant in two thousand three, last days in two thousand five. So like Vansant, Van Sant, Van Sant. then Van Sant again for milk. This is why I say like Gus Van Sant kind of invented the the independent spirit awards. Um Cinematography for Greenberg in 2010 for Noah Baumbach. Also, he did the cinematography for Birth 2004, Margo at the Wedding, another Baumbach. Um Zodiac in 2007, which is one of my favorite. Like, it's insane that Harris Savides did not
0: get Harris Savides his Oscar for Zodiac,
1: and give it to him again. I think this is a little more controversial, but like, he did the cinematography for Sofia Coppola somewhere and. Um, and then posthumously, the Bling Ring. And mm-hmm. like, so basically, it was just like he worked with Gus Van Sant, Noah Bombeck, uh, Sophia Coppola, and then like did like the one Fincher movie. And he did the yards for James Gray, he did the game for David Fincher. So just like it's everything is so great. Like, there are so very few duds on this guy's resume it's insane he's always one of like those people when I mentioned the fact that like the cinematography branch takes too long to realize it with certain people and just like mm-hmm. they ran
0: out of time with this guy and it sucks because like he gave some they of the absolutely could have done it for milk though because yeah. like I know that this shot was achieved digitally but that whole shot with the whistle is like how the fuck are you not gonna nominate that yes
1: no it it's it's Infuriating. It's a little infuriating. I'm trying to think of who, because like he had done Zodiac with Fincher the year before, and I'm sure whoever did the cinematography on Benjamin Button did get nominated that next year.
0: Uh, Was it Prieto? Let's see.
1: Claudio Miranda. Uh, yeah, was six, nominated. Six, six, six. That year, Anthony Don Mantle won for Slumdog Millionaire, which I could not be mad at because ever since 28 Days Later I was saying Anthony Don Mantle deserved an Oscar for cinematography. Um, Changeling was a nominee that year for Tom Stern. Wally Ugh. Pfister for The Dark Knight. And sure. that weird double uh, nomine- uh, a shared nomination between Roger Deakins and Chris Menges for The Reader.
0: Because I believe... Chris Menjies had to... Uh, they they did reshoots for that movie yes. that Deacons was not available for. I
1: think that's right, because Deacons works all the fucking time. So, yeah. yeah. Um, both Love both of those cinematographers, probably would not have nominated them for the reader anyway, but... No. Um, to get back to the score... Harris No, I feel... Well, did you have oh, anything score, else to say about yes. Harris
0: Terrence Blanchard's score. So...
1: I don't know... I, cu- I tried to pick out what about this score was Terence Blanchard's. I thought maybe, like, I guess the jazzier stuff, which is, like, reminiscent of the stuff he does in um... Fuck, why am I blanking? 25th Hour. Uh, which mm-hmm. is should be an Oscar winner for Terrence Blanchard. It's such an amazing score. But there's also so much other stuff. This score felt so schizophrenic between the, like, jazzy stuff, which, again, might be Terrence Blanchard, might be other, um, you know, borrowed music from other sources. Studio decisions.
0: Because, like, the parts that I hated were the parts that made the... It felt like the movie was so, like... A little placid, but then, like, they got some type of note to make it a little bit more maudlin. Or, like... And it's the score that's doing Or Or, um... Or whimsical. That, like, twangy guitar cover
1: of somewhere over the rainbow which totally pulls you out of the movie because i'm just like is this somewhere over the rainbow and you're trying to like follow the notes which are so like sort of sparse and by the time you figure out that it's somewhere over the rainbow like two scenes have happened and you've totally missed it and then they pull out the um the score uh, from true uh. romance that ha- that han zimmer had adapted from such and such classical piece the sort of like Clock and like doo 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 thing. When Forrester's riding his bicycle outside, and the whole thing just feels like such a mishmash. And then we get the fucking ukulele cover of "Somewhere Over the Rainbow" at the end, and I'm just like, I have fully had it with the music in this movie. <laughs> I was, I think that's the point, right? Like, texted you just, uh, all caps, and just like the fucking ukulele cover of "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," I was so mad.
0: I just the omnipresence of that in the early 2000s and then it still will show up in a movie sometimes or in a diaper commercial (laughs) or like I don't know you light a candle and magically it sends the (laughs) sound waves of that song through your home (laughs) all due respect to that musical artist who I don't assume that he knew would be this no. number would be taken over by like Starbucks and white people to convey <laughs> a sense of like ease and reflection that is so artificial. <laughs> Someone
1: turns on the light for their like vanity mirror in their bathroom, or whatever, and it's just like ooh, <laughs> and it's just like no. <laughs>
0: Uh, that that song is like my version of Bloody Mary. Like I, <laughs> you say it enough times again. All due respect to the artist, because it is not the artist's no. fault. It is the culture's fault for allowing it to become one of the most annoying pieces
1: of. You music. say Bloody Mary in the mirror, and just this like disembodied ukulele just shows up, and it's just like blink 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 blink. The lights
0: flicker, and uh. it's like. Uh...
1: Yeah, but every time there was something like that, the other the 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 true romance thing, where it was just like I spent minutes fumbling for my Shazam, trying to find uh, find out what I knew this from because I knew it was a score from a movie that I'd seen, and I literally from memory Googled like music score Plinky Glockenspiel nineteen nineties or whatever, <laughs> and the first result was True Romance, and I'm just like that couldn't be right, and I hit it, and I was just like. <gasps> very happy weird. about stuff. yeah what else weird 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 anything else I before don't know, we get man. into did it get any weird nominations or awards
0: it got a satellite nomination for uh sean connery which is another very satellite see nomination because like maybe this is another movie they didn't see before voting right um Rob Brown got some newcomer awards yeah, from Critics' Prizes. I don't get it. Which we disagree yeah. on the performance. I think that I think that's a good call. I mean, like, what else was going on that year? I guess Zhang Ziyi, or Zhi Yeah for Crouching Tiger could be taking those. Yeah, I mean,
1: it, you know, definitely. At least that. You had... I mean, Jamie Bell for Billy Elliot. I don't know how he's not sweeping all of those. He's so... You, like... That was a very star is born kind of a performance for a kid. He carries that movie. He's so good. Um Yeah. Yeah. I mean I Poor I, I I of course love Almost Famous more than anybody, but I don't even think I would put uh uh Patrick Fugit above them even though he's adorable, but like he's clearly
0: I mean, part of the reason why that movie works is that he's a little like square yes. and uncharismatic, yes, right? Yes, yes,
1: absolutely, absolutely. But um, what's his maybe face? that's
0: like an accident on Cameron Crowe's part? Rory Culkin, I don't know if it's fully intentional.
1: Yeah, Rory Culkin, and you can count on me is also one I would maybe uh, put yes, on the list. Yes, yes, yes. He's so good in that. Yeah. So, lots of stuff. Lots of possibilities. Fantastic. Anything else before we want to jump into an IMDb game?
0: I don't know. I'm staring at this Finding Forrester poster again for the last moment before I cast it off Forever.
1: Yeah, very much a floating pad. And
0: it's like 50%... Sean Connery's head looming above New York City. And the
1: way that his like
0: jacket... is right there! You don't have to search for him to find him. Right. The way that his jacket sort of
1: slopes off of his shoulders, it looks like his head is placed atop like a tall mountain that is in the background of New York City,
0: <laughs> where... He's just, like, staring off into the Hudson like, as, like, I don't know, the Zeus like there's, of this story. <laughs> Like,
1: there's a volcanic peak in New Jersey that, like, his head is sort of balancing in the crater of
0: it's a little crazy like this is of course the era of floating heads and posters but it's a little crazy that like every Sean Connery movie has a floating head in there like do you think that was on his like contract (laughs) right that my face has to take up a certain percentage of the poster
1: this face is gonna sell
0: tickets for ya My face has to be on the post.
1: See, you have the more of, like, the growly, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing a little bit of, like...
0: (laughs) But again, it's still pirate. (laughs) Did we ever get Sean Connery playing a pirate?
1: I don't think so. That's a missed opportunity.
0: Where was he when... That's what we call a missed opportunity.
1: (laughs) He could have been Jack Sparrow's, like, long-lost dad instead of whoever it turned out to be. Keith Richards. Ah, Keith Richards. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it also, the Finding Forrester poster is also from the era of, when in doubt, just like, have it be this golden sepia hue, yeah. where half I'm half expecting...
0: It's like a candle movie for men.
1: Like, did you say a candle movie?
0: Yeah, I've talked about candle movies before, like Secret Life of Bees from the poster, it tells you that it's a candle movie. I,
1: I, I, I the vibe is perfect. Walk me yes. walk me to the door of where a candle
0: enters in. Because it's like you just like light a candle and it's supposed to be like Soothing. relaxing aromatherapy gotcha. Gotcha. like okay. there's such a thing as like aromatherapy movie. Yes, I like that. Okay, this is good.
1: What would the candle of finding Forrester smell like? Um book mold <laughs> You know those people who are just like I will never um, give up. I will never give up physical copies of books because I just prefer the way books smell, which always takes me back to going to the library as a child. And like so many of the children's books smelled like barf, and like they just did. And I don't know if it was like kids trying (laughs) to read in the car. What's that? Kids are disgusting. Kids are disgusting. But they also try and read in the car, and they don't understand what motion sickness is, and then they barf either adjacent yeah. to the book or maybe onto the book and they cleaned it up. I don't know. But the books smell like barf. Un- unavoidably, they do.
0: I'm sorry. But Finding Forrester isn't bad enough to smell like barf as a can. No, it's, I think you're it's right. It's like just mildly Must. unpleasant, but you can deal with it. And maybe there's this undercurrent of something that does smell good, and like you try to hang on to that.
1: Connery's apartment in this movie is... Looks like a dungeon. Is Well, Sure. It's um, very cluttered and messy, but I don't think it's like dirty or smelly. You know what I mean? Like, he seems to like. It's just like old and no one's been he there. He cleans but those windows not- constantly. Like, he's like. He's clean, but it's just like very
0: scattered and busy and cluttered. He's the top floor of this huge building. Why is there not more light in there?
1: He's a corner apartment. He has, like, at least one bay window, I think. Like, you know, do something with that. There yeah. should be more light. But again, I feel like that's
0: thematic, right? But it's not so bad that you're expecting to see, like, a jar of piss or something.: Right, exactly. Like, Challenger probably right, right.
1: like, as recluses go, he's keeping it tight. He's keeping it 100, yeah. and we appreciate that about him. All right. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Sure. Should I explain what the IMDb game is? Do. All right. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says are their most known for. If any of these titles are television or voiceover work, we will mention that up front. It's only fair. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints so that we can get this podcast in the can already. So, Chris. Hooray. Would you like to give first, or receive first?
0: Uh, I will guess first. How about that?
1: Alright, I'm pretty sure we haven't done this person yet. I Mm -hmm. went down the Gus Van Sant route. He has many avenues down which to follow. Uh, We mentioned the Psycho remake, the ill-advised Psycho remake. And who did he get to play Norman Bates in that? Was, of course, Mm. Vince Vaughn.
0: So, noted,
1: bastard Vince. Noted, Vaughan? bastard Vince Vaughn. Yeah, we we've, I feel like we've mentioned Vince Vaughn tangentially a lot lately, but I don't think we've ever done him for an IMDb game. So,
0: have at it. Okay, um, old school? No. <laughs> Which is crazy. Fuck. Um Wedding Crashers? Uh yes, absolutely Wedding Crashers. Okay. Do I think Swingers is on there? That's the question. I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say... Wait a minute, no. Because he's buds with Mel Gibson. And he was in Hacksaw Ridge. I'm going to say Hacksaw Ridge.
1: Incorrect. So now you're going to get years. Fuck. Your years are 2006... 2009 and
0: 2017. Mm-hmm. 2017 and it is not Hacksaw. Ra- Wait, was that no? That was 2016. Uh, 2006. That was my. That's got to be the breakup. Correct the breakup.
1: I can never keep uh, romantic comedies. Apart by year, nearly as well as I can other genres for whatever reason.
0: Mm, So kudos to you. I feel like I can, yeah. That was less the genre, just like when that movie. Sure, sure, sure. Um, 2017. Yeah.
1: The Mel Gibson route isn't necessarily the wrong route to follow there uh, Mm -hmm. in the long run, I will say.
0: It's not Fighting with My Family that came out this year. Right. Or the past year, I should say. We are, after all, Florence Pugh fans. Right.
1: But Hacksaw Ridge was not the only movie he made with Mel Gibson.
0: Oh, Mel Gibson directed another movie? No. Is it that movie that has, like, the worst title ever? The d- 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 Concrete something? Dragged across concrete? It's not that, but, like... Jesus, like, follow- abs- get that away from me. But
1: follow that one more down the rabbit hole. What was the one before that?
0: I haven't thought of this thing as a thing that existed until I found out the first time and absolutely just, like, you know the real life version of blocking somebody on Twitter <laughs> to this movie. It's a jail movie. It is. I think it's the same director as Dragged Across Concrete. It is. It's, hmm.
1: You said it's a yeah.
0: it's a jail movie. Yeah, it's like prison. What
1: are what are what
0: are in jails? It has another stupid title, but not necessarily something. What like What are
1: the units that comprise a a, a prison?
0: Hmm. Uh pff, I don't know. Um like wings, not wings, but like
1: what are what are the things that the people are locked in? Jail cells. Right. And then and a big group of uh, those the, would be uh,
0: something about a cell block. Yep. What's happening in the cell Some, block? A tango. Um <laughs> This is straight cell block tango. It is
1: essentially. What are they doing um, in the cell block? Except
0: it's all about bigotry and something. Right. I don't know.
1: Um, what are they doing in the cell block besides tangoing?
0: Um, being in jail.
1: <laughs> but like, what if like something were provoked? Uh. I'd charades this to you if I could. Um. Uh, it's yeah, I got the movie, though. Fine. It's Brawl and Cell, Block, Cell Block 99. I feel like I could have walked you to it. Fuck I off. could have walked you to the doorstep of it. It's a bad um, movie. Alright, so you got three of them. You're missing the one from 2009.
0: Okay, 2009 Vince Vaughn. This is when it's, like, died out. But I can't, this is what I can't place. Um... I think Four Christmases was before this. It was. Is it The Dilemma?
1: No, it is not The Dilemma. That might have also been that year.
0: Um, Ron Howard's The Dilemma.
1: (laughs) It is... I'm trying to think. I'm looking at the poster. There are eight people on this poster. He and one other person are foregrounded. Everybody else is backgrounded in
0: pairs. Everybody else, so it's an ensemble movie? Because it's usually him and like one other person? Yeah, this is like... And they're pairs? Yes. Is it Couples Retreat? It's Couples Retreat, well done. Why did I think Couples Retreat was like 2005? I don't know. Probably because it's exactly like the movies he was making in 2005. Basically. Do you know who directed it? Is that a Favreau movie?
1: No, it's directed by the kid who played Ralphie in A Christmas Story. Shut up. Peter Billingsley, yes. Alright, fine. So there. Yeah, the men in that movie are Vince Vaughn, uh, John Favreau, Jason Bateman, and Faison Love. And they are coupled up with Malin Ackerman with Vaughn, uh, Kristen Davis with Favreau, Kristen Bell with Jason Bateman, and Callie Hawk, I believe, is with Faison Love. So there we go.
0: I'm filling out the chart for all of our past IMDb game people, and I'm just noting that you gave me Anne Heche in the previous episode. Uh-huh. And now Vince Vaughn. One- yes, I should have known that you were going to go in this I'm
1: painting. Route. I'm painting the corner for Psycho 98.
0: Alrighty. For your IMDb game challenge, I went the Sean Connery route. Um, his noted love... Interest finger quotes in the rad movie that is First Night. We're talking about Miss Julia Armand. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. Listen, if I can bomb Vince Vaughn, Uh which I I take as a note of pride for myself to not know (laughs) Vince Vaughn. Okay. I think you can do well with Julia Armand. Alright, Julia Armand, Sabrina.
1: Yes, Julia Ormond, Legends of the Fall.
0: Legends of the Fall, baby!
1: You cannot make me guess Smilla's Sense of Snow, even though I want to guess Smilla's Sense of Snow.
0: (laughs) I should watch Smilla's Sense of Snow. What the fuck? Alright,
1: um... Now we get to me wondering how many other films, because everything else I remember her of is TV. Like, um...
0: Iron God TV. Angels,
1: yeah. Or um, what did she show up on semi recently that I was just like, oh, Julia Ormond. Was it Mad Men? It was Mad Men. Enjoyed her on Mad Men. I'm stalling. Okay. <sighs> Julia Ormond was in My Week with Marilyn, where she played Vivian Lee. Is it My Week with Marilyn?
0: Yes. I would like to note that you have you have no wrong guesses, and you are just waiting on one movie.
1: Yeah, I sure am. So I'm not giving you any hints. I know you shouldn't. Okay, the only other God, I want Now I maybe I should guess. Smell a sense of snow. Okay, the only other movie I can think of her being in, and it's a very small role, so might not show up. And she's the lead in Smell a Sense of Snow. But is it Inland
0: Empire? No. Shit. Is it Smell a Sense of Snow? It is not Smell Ooh, a Sense motherfucker. of Snow. Uh Your year is 2008. Which is right. before my week with Marilyn. It
1: is. Okay. 2008. What's Julia Ormond doing in 2008? She's saying, Hey, wasn't it weird that I was in Inland Empire two years ago? Is what she's doing
0: <laughs> in 2008. <laughs> Uh, this is a movie that we have mentioned on this very episode.
1: Well, we were going through the cinematography nominees for 2008. So,
0: I don't remember You probably forget that she's in this movie.
1: Milk? No. 2008, cinematography, Slumdog, she's not in Slumdog.
0: Could you imagine?
1: Is she in Benjamin
0: Button? She is. She is Kate Blanchett's daughter in Benjamin Button.
1: No way. I forgot that. Okay. She's Yay. good.
0: All I right. like Benjamin Button. I know people despise that movie, but I think it's good.
1: So, Sabrina, Legends of the Fall, Benjamin Button, My Week with Marilyn. Yep. Interesting. Okay.
0: Good job. I think if I can brag about my performance in Madeline, for Madeline Stowe, <laughs> you can brag about your Julia Ormond performance.
1: Should have been Smell a Sense of Snow. Okay. I think that's our episode. I think that's our episode. A good one, let's say.
0: A very good one. A very... Bookish yes. episode for yes. Finding Forrester. Yes. If you want more Dishadashkabash, you can check out <laughs> oh the Tumblr at Dishadashkabash.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account. What? Well, this I, I don't know what
1: that's morphing into now. It's like Doctor Evil, just like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry, that was just a really burst laughter. I'm sorry. Um, no, you should follow our Twitter account where we do not tweet in the voice of Sean Connery. At had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz Joe. Where can the listeners find you and your stuff? If you want to find me on the internet,
1: um, that was very pirate. That's I think full mine is pirate. yeah. Full I do pirate. I do Sean Connery like a pirate. I think that's what we've discovered about me today. Um, I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed Reed is spelled R-E-I-D Letterboxed as Joe Reed also spelled R-E-I-D
0: I'm also on Twitter at Crispy File, that's F-E-I-L, letterboxed under the same name, and writing regularly for the film experience. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility, so please write us a review and tell us that we are the man now, dog, and forever. You're the man now! Dog. You're the man forever. Um, that's all for this week, but we hope you come back next week for more buzz and less pirate voice.
1: I'm sorry, I'm deficient. If you to If you really want party